0: You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig If We can all return to our seats. And as you're doing so, if you'd open up to Jonah chapter 4. Uh, my name is Craig, if we've had not had the privilege to meet, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I just want to welcome you and say it's great to have you uh, with us as we look at the book of Jonah. We're in chapter four today. Every message has been about mercy. The series is called Surprising Mercy. Today we're going to talk about maddening mercy, which would be Jonah's point of view. In this passage, if you don't have a Bible, if you uh, grab one, there's one under the seat in front of you. You can turn to page 452, and you'll be able to track along with us in the story. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, that's just our gift to you. Please take that Bible home with you, and uh, it's uh, our gift to you. We'd love you just to have God's Word um, for your own reading. So today, we're going to look at Jonah chapters, uh, 4, verses 1 through 5. What just happened last week is after a tremendous amount of drama, Jonah finally ends up in the city of Nineveh. He proclaims to the city of Nineveh that God will bring judgment on them. They are a foreign nation, enemies of Jonah's nation, Israel. And God does uh, show tremendous mercy to them. And so today, we look at what Jonah's response is to God showing mercy to Israel's enemy. Before we look at verse 1, let's look up one verse. So let's set the context by starting in chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, referring to the repentance in Nineveh, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord "'And said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? "'That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. "'For I know that you are a gracious God, "'and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, "'and relenting from disaster. "'Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, "'for it is better for me to die than to live.' the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. This is God's word to us. You know, the witness, the gospel witness of Jesus Christ shines brightest in the world during the darkest times. And in recent years, I can't remember a time where I saw this more profoundly than in 2015, when the witness of Christian believers shone in the darkest of times. You'll all remember in June of 2015, when a young white supremacist, age 21, named Dylan Roof, walked into the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. It was a Wednesday night, and there was a small group of people having a Bible study, all black, he white, and he joined them. They welcomed him, and at the end of the study, when they all bowed their head and prayed, the end of the evening, he pulled out a gun, and began shooting. When the rampage was over, there were nine dead in that Bible study. After a short manhunt, he was found, and the event that I'm referring to, which was absolutely astounding, was uh, during his, uh, his first public appearance in court. And here's what happened at his first public appearance in court. I'm reading from the Washington Post. One by one, those who chose to speak at a bond hearing, so victims' families were given an opportunity to speak when the judge was deciding bond for him. One by one, those who chose to speak at a bond hearing did not turn to anger. Instead, while he remained impassive, they offered him forgiveness. And said they were praying for his soul, even as they described the pain of their losses. I forgive you, Nadine Collier, the daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance, said at the hearing, her voice breaking with emotion. You took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never, ever hold her again but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. Felicia Sanders spoke about her son, Tawanza Sanders, who was killed. We welcomed you Wednesday night in our Bible study. With welcome arms, said Felicia Sanders, her voice trembling. Tawanza Sanders was my son, but Tawanza Sanders was my hero. Tawanza was my hero. May God have mercy on you. May God have mercy on you. It is a compelling witness when the people of God, forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ, pray for mercy upon their enemies. An enemy who took their lives, who took innocent lives solely and only because of the color of their skin. And yet, person after person, this, this phrase was repeated, may God have mercy on you, prayed for mercy on his soul, that in his relationship with God, in his relationship with the state he will face justice, but in his relationship with God they desired he experience mercy. That is surprising. And. In an exact opposite approach, is it not surprising when a very prophet of God is angry with God when God shows mercy upon an enemy? The contrast is dramatic between those grieving loved ones and the prophet of God, Jonah, Because when God shows mercy to his enemy, he wants to die. He despairs of life. Tim Keller has said of this last chapter of Jonah that Jonah has the most unexpected and overlooked chapter in the entire Bible. It is overlooked because most people are very aware of the fish and they're very aware of Nineveh turning to God but often they're far less aware of how the story ends. It's unexpected because most people would think that if you preach a message and there is 100% repentance in response to your message, that you would go home praising God for His work rather than angry at God. It is unexpected. How do we understand Jonah's response to God when there has been unprecedented repentance among a foreign people? How do we understand this? How can Jonah see this? See the people of God turn, the people of Nineveh turn to God and be angry about it. Well, Jonah is angry with God, I think, for a couple of reasons that show up in the text. One is that he has a very imbalanced theology, an imbalanced theology that I want to look at with some detail today. And he also has a very selfish heart. And when you take an imbalanced theology and a selfish heart, which we all have both in some measure, but when you take an imbalanced theology and a selfish heart, you can end up with surprising responses to the work of God. First of all, his imbalanced theology. Jonah, after seeing such an unbelievable act of repentance. Verse 1 says, it it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, each week I'm referring to little footnotes in the ESV, and I'm going to do that again today. When it says it displeased Jonah exceedingly, there's a note, and if you look down at the footnote, it says that this can literally be translated, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. Wow. Wow. God brings forgiveness, and Jonah's take is, this is exceedingly evil. Now, how in the world could he come to that conclusion? Well, it is because Jonah has a theology of justice that God does not share, and when God does not share our theology, we are in trouble, We have crafted a theology after our own preference, our own desire, our own wisdom, our own ways, and this is a dangerous place to be. We see Jonah's theology revealed in his prayer, and our prayers always reveal what we believe to be true about God. Our lack of prayer at times reveals what we believe to be true about God. You can really measure a person's theology, not by what they say they believe, but by how we pray. Because when we, in our prayers, it reveals what we believe to be true about God, what we believe to be true about ourselves, what we believe to be true about the world around us. We show what we actually believe to be true about God. And Jonah begins his prayer here, referring back to God's call. He says, uh, verse 2, his beginning of his prayer is he, he prayed to the Lord and said, "'Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? "'God, this is what I told you back when you called me to go to Nineveh.'" So there's been wrestling and arguing between Jonah and God that's not in chapter 1, but it's referred to here. Is this not what I told you back then?' He says that this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God, etc. So he said, "'This is why I ran.'" I ran from you because of that. He uses, and what he does next is he begins to quote God's word. He begins to quote God's word to him, and we'll look at the verse in a minute. But he begins to quote God's word to him from the, uh, another passage of Scripture. In Exodus, he says, God, I knew that you were, what does he say here in Jonah 4? A gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This is what he said. I knew this about you. You are a God who would show grace to these wicked, cruel, and they were cruel people. I read someone this week that described them simply as they were a terrorist state. Cruel people advancing on other nations for their own greed, and then when, when defeating other nations, cruelly torturing them uh, in, in the worst ways imaginable. And so he says, I knew you were a God of grace, and you would show grace to sinners like these people. Now, never mind that the only reason Jonah is alive to pray this prayer is because of the grace of God. The only reason he can argue with God and throw up Scripture in God's face accuse God of wrongdoing is because God has shown Him grace and has not given him what He deserved, but has rescued him from the fish. I knew that you were, what else does he say, a God who is merciful, that is, that you would have pity on this people. I knew that you were a God that was slow to anger, in contrast to Jonah, who's very quick to anger, very quick to anger with God and His ways. I knew that you were one who would, who would be merciful and slow to anger, that you would give them a 40-day warning as opposed to giving immediate judgment upon Nineveh. He goes to announce in 40 days, judgment's coming. Jonah would have preferred with no warning for God to just pour out some form of judgment upon the people of Nineveh. I knew that you were abounding in steadfast love. Now this term, steadfast love, is a statement of God's faithfulness, uh, his unrelenting uh, ongoing love to those whom he shows his love. That he's unchanging in character is what it says. I knew that you were a God who would is relenting from disaster, verse 2. Well, that's what we read up in chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they repented, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster. So I knew that that's what you do with people. And the problem, the reason he's angry, is he is in essence saying, God, you are soft on sin. Look at all of these responses to their wickedness, our enemies. Look at all your responses. Grace, mercy, compassion, steadfast love, slow to anger, relenting of deserved disaster in their lives It's like he's saying, you are all love and no justice. You're letting your enemies and our enemies off the hook. All they had to do, all they had to do was say, we're sorry. Skip a few meals, put on some sackcloth, and you give them a pass for all of their violence, their evil, their hostility to us. I mean, it would be very tempting to think They, they aren't really repentant. They're just scared. They just don't want disaster to come their way. And so they just sort of say, oh, we're sorry. But God, think about what they deserve. This is Jonah's heart. You're soft on them because you're gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. This is not fair. This is not just. And God, if this is the way you're going to run the universe, I can't go on. Just kill me. That's what he says. If you are not a God who is just, just let me die. And he gets all of this from the Bible. These aren't just random thoughts he has about God. These are characteristics that God describes himself with. But what we're about to see is that the only thing worse than attempting to use God's word against him is to pull it out of context and edit God's word and use it against him. The passage that Jonah is quoting that he is angry about God's actions where he says, you are all mercy in essence, all love, no justice. He doesn't give us the complete verses. The verses are found in Exodus 34, which we'll look at. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. This is what the verses say. This is, um, The Lord has instructed Moses to make two tablets. He's going to write on the tablets. And then right after that, he reveals his nature to Moses. And he says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He cuts the verses off. He doesn't tell us, but who will by no means clear guilty the guilty. This is the word of God. God is merciful, and yet God will always punish sin. God punishes sin, but he also shows mercy. He is merciful, and he is just. Our theology must come from a complete picture of God's word, not just our perception of God's actions. Jonah doesn't believe God is who God says he is in his word. He takes part of the verse and speaks it back to God. He takes part of the verse, overlays it on his personal perception, his personal experience, and says, see God, you're out of balance. When God's word shows that he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He showed mercy as relented the disaster as they were repentant and turned towards him so he's saying see God you are doing it wrong I knew that you would do this why because he looks at what happens he takes some verses of scripture he says this is how you are it's imbalanced all love all mercy he denies the point about bringing judgment clearly to those who are guilty and he is mad at God see faith is the very opposite real faith says I may not understand what's going on I may not like what's going on. I may find what's going on to be very confusing. And God, I don't even know what you're doing right now. However, I look to your word and know that you are who you say you are in your word. The story is not over. And so I will judge you by your word rather than judging you by my interpretation or my perception of what's going on in this moment alone two very different approaches and we're all tempted to be like Jonah are we not we're all tempted to just interpret god by what we experience rather than interpreting him by his word there's a place to say how long o lord the psalmist repeat that there's a place to say where are you god but ultimately to believe and to trust in him. God is merciful and God is just. He will punish the guilty. He does show mercy. And biblically, we see mercy and justice coming together in the clearest way in all of Scripture at the peak of the storyline of the Bible, which is the person and work of Jesus. In Jesus Christ on the cross, we see perfect justice and we see perfect mercy. Uh, the Bible says that he who knew no sin, Jesus, came to be sin. That is, that God treated Jesus as a sacrificial lamb. God put our sin up on Jesus. He who knew no sin came to be sin. So that when we believe in Christ, when we trust Him as the substitute, when we believe that God has poured out judgment upon the Son for our sins, that our sins actually are punished, that He does not leave our sins, uh, that, that our sins are, our, our guilt is taken care of, our guilt is condemned, our guilt is punished in Christ. When we believe that truth, we receive that and we are declared the righteousness of God in Christ he who knew no sin came to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That Jesus the innocent pays for the guilty. It's the great exchange. It's the, it's the greatest act of mercy imaginable that the holy God of the universe takes the, uh, the punishment for our sin in his own son and himself that we might be free. So there is justice. Sin is judged through Christ's atonement. And there is mercy for all who will believe. If we are just judgment conscious, it can produce some bad things in our lives. If we are just mercy uh, conscious, it can produce some bad things in our lives. But in Christ, we see the perfect balance. We see the perfect expression. We see the perfect expression of Exodus 34 in Christ where we see the steadfast love, the grace, the mercy, the relenting from disaster on us because he gave his son disaster. So that we, he relents it from us. We see both of these together. And the reality is that we each can receive justice or mercy eternally. And our justice or mercy eternally is determined by our response to Christ. So if you choose to reject Christ, if you choose not to trust him as the substitute for your sin, if you choose to uh, not follow him, If if you choose a different storyline for your life, a different goal, a different view of life than the one that is found in Christ, that is found in the scripture, that we are all fallen sinners and that God has sent a son, his son to rescue us. If you reject him, then you will stand before the Lord and you will receive justice for he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. We just read that. But if you believe in Jesus, then you will receive mercy because you will receive the the punishment given to his son and the mercy given to you. So this is how we see mercy and justice going together. It's very important that we see both and that we don't minimize either because they're both equally true in God. Jonah has an imbalanced theology where he believes God should show justice now. But Jonah not only has a theology problem, he has a heart problem as well. We're not just theological beings who believe certain things about God. We are also beings who are motivated with desires and impulses in our core, which is called our heart. He has a selfish heart. Underlying this narrative is the sense that Jonah has a better idea of how God should act. Jonah, we could say, loves God and has a wonderful plan for God's life. Jonah has Jonah has these ideas of how to direct God. Jonah puts himself at the center of the story. So this isn't God uh, as the sovereign ruler of the universe working his plans. This is Jonah at the center and say, this is what makes sense to me. We're your people. They're our enemies and your enemies. Mercy for us, justice for them. That's the way he thinks from his point of view, center of the universe, that everything should run. And so he is mad at God. It's interesting that he doesn't want them to receive steadfast love, and yet he celebrates when he's in the fish. Things look different, I guess, when you're on the inside of a fish. And uh, there he says in chapter 2, verse 8, so he prays twice in this book, once in a fish, one outside, and once what we're reading today, chapter 4. And he says there in in chapter 2, verse 8, he prays, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. All those pagans, you know, they don't have sacri- they have forsaken steadfast love. But I am a recipient of steadfast love. I know your steadfast love and I thank you for it. Steadfast love for me? Yes. Steadfast love for them? Absolutely not. That is unjust. It's evil, he says. This is wrong. How can a holy God not punish sin? God responds to Jonah with such mercy because at this point, after he's refused God and evidently argued with him at the beginning of the book, which those verses, that, that dialogue's not included, he's run from him, he has been rescued, he went and preached, from what the way the text reads, a, a very uninspired kind of approach, lacking compassion in Nineveh. God works, he is angry with God, and God is still coming back to him mercifully. God could say, okay, you want to die? That would be just. (laughs) You want justice? Here you go. Boom, lightning bolt, it's all over. You know, that, God could have done that, but God just tenderly asks him a question. Verse 4, the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well? The NIV says, translates it, is it right for you to be angry? He doesn't rebuke him in anger. Stop being angry, which is a really ironic expression. Stop being angry. Lower your voice. Any parent ever said that? Don't raise your voice around here. <clears throat> Maybe I was the only parent that ever did that. But uh, So it's not stop being angry. He, he's rather, hey, can I ask you a question? What, what are you so angry about? What's going on, Jonah? He, he leads Jonah to sort of consider his heart. He asks him a question that would lead him to examine himself what are you angry about why are you angry that's the question what what are you believing about god right now what, what is this why are you so amped up about this issue of mercy to them why does that bother you what do you want what is it that you're wanting what are you, why are you despairing of life is this anger good how's that anger working out for you, Jonah? Anger, generally speaking, is usually the result of our expecting something or wanting something and not getting it. Usually we become angry when we want something and we want it bad enough that the denial of it uh, causes an emotional response within us. Things didn't go as we expected. Things didn't go as we wanted. Our spouse didn't respond like we thought or expected or desired him or her to respond. Our boss didn't do what we thought he should do. People let us down because we expected that they would do X and they did Y. And That's clearly the case here that he's expecting something, that he's wanting something. We could even say that he's demanding something that he's not getting. And because he's not getting, his response is angry. What does he expect and want? Well, he wants God to judge Nineveh immediately without being slow to anger and giving them the 40 day warning. And and so he wants this more than he wants God's will. This is what he wants. Most of all, he wants God to act in the manner that he believes would be right for God to act, and he's got a portion of a scripture to back it up. In Keller's book, The Prodigal Prophet, which we have, it's not too late to get that book. It's really good. It's out on a resource center if you'd like to get it. He says of this moment in the Jonah uh, narrative, when Jonah says, in effect, without that, I have no desire to go on, meaning, because you haven't done what I wanted, just kill me. I have no desire to go on. When he says that, he means he has lost something that had replaced God as the main joy, reason, and love of his life. He had a relationship with God, but there was something else he valued more. His explosive anger shows that he is willing to discard his relationship with God if he does not get this thing. When you say, I won't serve you, God, if you don't give me X, then X is your true bottom line, your highest love, your real God, the thing that you most trust and rest in. Here is Jonah saying to God, who should be the only real source of meaning in his life, I have no reason of meaning. I have no source of meaning. What was it for Jonah? Jonah. Nineveh's repentance was pleasing to God, but it was threatening to Israel's national interests. The will of God and the political fortunes of Israel seemed to be diverging. One would have to be chosen, and Jonah leaves no doubt as to which of those two concerns was more important to him. He could choose God's will and God's way, or he could choose national security and safety, as he saw it, for Israel. Our anger shows what we most want, what is most important to us. It reveals what even matters more to us than God. Jonah's will, God's will, they collide. Now, as Keller points out there, Assyria, the nation of Assyria, is a real threat. And so, if God is slow to anger that gives them time to build up strength, to go about their ways, to grow and build and become an increasing threat to Israel over time. So slow to anger means we're at greater risk. We're more vulnerable. So this is a legitimate concern that he's raising, but, but it's a concern that, that foregoes. Uh, the purposes of God, which we don't know. His ways are not our ways, the Bible says. If God is merciful and doesn't destroy them, then they may be actually free to attack and harm Israel. This is the concern. If God in this situation is slow to anger and merciful, then he's merciful with people who may in turn come and harm us. So if the choice is between safety and God's will, he picks safety. Rather than submitting to God, rejoicing that people who don't know God are at some level turning to God with fasting and repentance, uh, the king calling them to cease evil, and violence. So rather than celebrating that and then bringing his anxieties and fears about the future to God and leaving those with God in prayer, he simply despairs and wants to die. But what if God is merciful to Assyria? What if God is slow to anger with Assyria so that they may actually continue in their ways and attack Israel? and bring discipline to his people. I mean, here's the amazing thing about the ways of God. What if the most loving thing for God's people is for God to let Assyria survive so that Assyria can conquer Israel, take them into exile, so that then Israel will wake up and repent and turn to their God? Historically, that's exactly what happens. God is at work by allowing his enemies to go on. God is at work by using them to, to bring discipline to Israel so that they will turn back to God. Anger at God for not giving us what we want is very short-sighted. Jonah is playing the short game here for sure. This looks wrong to me right now. Now, there's, we just studied Habakkuk, so there's other points in the Bible where judgment is coming and they're saying, hey, this is unfair, But ultimately, God is always acting for our good. This is what we must be confident in. God is always acting for my good, even if I can't connect the dots and tell you how this is going to end up for my good. God is always acting for our good. And that's why we must trust God at the bare statement of his word, his description of his character, the, what the Bible tells us he is like. That is the sure authoritative description of God. Because when we read the story of the Old Testament, we find out things, is, things are happening all the time that you would never expect that he's working for their good. Think about the, the work of Jesus in particular there's despairing, although oh, the king, the one that we put all of our hope in, surely God's Messiah has died. It's, it's over. But it is, if you drew a conclusion at any given moment, when the heat is on, then you're Peter and say, I never knew him because this looks really bad. I don't want to be associated with him. But in the long run, you see, no, no, it is his resurrection and his ultimate victory. So we don't know the ways of God. Being angry with God for what he is doing, charging God, you know, taking God's character to task is very short-sighted. It's a failure to say, God, I trust you for you are good. So this is Jonah's anger. It's easy. This is pretty obvious, isn't it? It's pretty easy to take shots at Jonah, which I feel like I've done. By the way, these kind of passages of the Bible if you're one who's new to the Bible and wonder, is this really true? And so, This is one of those passages that really leads us to, to draw the conclusion that, that the Bible um, has a, 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 a ring of authenticity to it because it includes embarrassing parts. Scholars call this the criterion of embarrassment, that the, one of the signs that the story of the Scripture, the recording of the Scripture, one of the signs, one among many, Uh, that it's authentic, is that it includes sections about its leaders that you would never include if you were creating a religion, putting your best face forward, trying to draw people to your religion, uh, trying to create a, a story. You would never include a prophet of God, speaks for God, called of God, acting like this. You'd never write a story where the pagan unbelievers come out smelling like a rose, and he comes out smelling like well, fill in the blank. Hey, he comes out really bad. They come out really wonderful. It's the criterion of embarrassment. It gives, a, it gives an authenticity. It, tells us it, it gives a there's a ring of, you wouldn't make this up, a ring of truth to it in the text. So it's easy to take this embarrassing sign of a religious leader in Israel. It's, it's easy to take that and say, oh, man, huh, he's so angry. Good, goodness, I, I would never do that. But is that true? I mean, let me ask you, what are you angry about today? Where's there anger in your heart? If the Lord were to come to you and say, do you do well to be angry about whatever it is that you're angry about today? How would you respond? What in the world angers you? I mean, there's a lot. In the, we are a culture of anger right now. It's easy to be angry about anything, you know. Every headline um, just can stir anger in our hearts. What are we so angry about? What are we so angry? Do we see God or are we just forgetting Him and angry about this? What in your life angers you? So maybe it's not just the culture. Maybe it's your your world. What about your family, your marriage, your lack of marriage, your job, your house, your body, your personality, your abilities, someone else's abilities. What is it that angers you about your life? What did, what did you expect that you're not getting? What do you desire that's not happening? And you respond with anger. Your children, your spouse, whatever it might be. What about God angers you? That's what this text is really about. It's anger with God, which in some ways, all anger does go back to, to God. God's the one who created the world and oversees the world. God certainly could have inserted himself and stopped that from happening, and yet he didn't. So what are you angry at God about? I can't solve all of our anger problems in the last five minutes of a sermon, but I can point to God and encourage you that the way out of the prison of anger and the prison of bitterness is not a change of circumstances. For everything to work out if, you, if you're an angry person, if you have a root of bitterness for for the situation just to turn out like you hope, d- does not mean anger is gone from your life because anger is rooted in us and in our view of ourselves, our view of God, and our view of the world, and it will just emerge in some other context. Because bo- your boss, who you're really angry with, quits and, or, or moves on, takes another job, your anger problem didn't walk out the door with her when she left. That's not how it works. It's, it's in here, and it'll, it'll emerge in some other context. So it's not a change of circumstances. It is a change of of theology that sees God as ruling over all, and a change of heart that believes that he is gracious and compassionate, and will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That he is fully just, that he is completely just, and completely merciful. And in the end, he will be just, uh, he, he will, uh, he will execute justice, and he will show mercy. And we want to get and receive his mercy, and celebrate his mercy, and share that mercy with others as well. We want to come to the place where we say, God, you are good. Show me your steadfast love. You are sovereign. Give me confidence that you are working in ways that I cannot see. That this moment isn't all of reality. This moment is just this moment, and you are writing the story of my life, and the story of history, and it all will end for your glory, and as a believer, for my good. Help me be confident of that. I trust you with that. I expect something different, but you, I, I feed my mind and my heart with the reality that you are good and you are at work. I desire a different outcome, but you are good, and I can, I can express my heart that I do desire something different. Where are you? But I can trust you with it. That's ultimately, I mean, there's a lot of ways to talk about anger, but ultimately that is a big part of it. That's really where we have to come. How do we view God? How do we view ourselves? And and do we want mercy not only for us, but also for them? As God begins to free us more and more from the selfish anger that we all experience when things don't go as we desire, we are freed increasingly to be a light in the darkness. Ult- ultimately, this is about our ability to glorify the Lord, our ability to serve others. But as we talk about public faith, I've mentioned this in every sermon in Jonah, as we do it is also that God is working in us so that he works through us to shine his light to the world. Jonah had an opportunity to shine light to the world. He did so begrudgingly, and when light showed up, he was upset. But God calls us to be forgiving, to desire mercy, even for enemies that our witness may be on display. Listen, we are living in angry, Times and our witness is perhaps no more compelling than when we are living with a quiet confidence in God. Yes, we are to call out about injustice and unrighteousness. Yes, we are to do what we can to bring about change uh, in our own lives and in our society for a j- more just and righteous uh, culture. Yes, we must do that. But we must ultimately have our confidence in God's justice and mercy above all else. And when we do, even when things don't go as we expect or desire, that's when our witness is so compelling as those families that stood in that courtroom and and desired God's mercy on the soul of an enemy. This is a profound work of God. Uh, When that happened, unbelieving people in the news media, said, this is incredible. They had no explanation for that. No explanation for that. It was an example of the grace of God on display so that people look and go, oh, that's what Jesus is like. As he dies on the cross and he says, Lord, uh, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus forgiving those who were his enemies those who are different than us, those who think differently from us, those who live differently than us, those who oppress and persecute uh, us for any number of reasons, including our faith, people who act in that way, to pray that God would have mercy upon them and then to seek to extend such kindness and mercy representing Him. That's what we're called to. This example is the exact opposite, but we learn from His failure and it points us to a Savior. We learn from his failure, we see our failure, and it points us to a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who is perfect justice and perfect mercy for us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.